something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And the number is 666. Sheep among wolves. How are you doing, everybody? I'm your host, Sam, and I am here with my co-host, George. In this episode, we will continue on our journey of the Great Reset versus the Great Awakening, and we will get into the third and fourth Great Awakening. So I hope you enjoy it. As always, please like or follow or subscribe to our channel if you haven't done that already. And you can always watch our shows on YouTube, BitChute, or Rumble. And you can find that at Great Oak Productions. So here is part two of Great Reset versus The Great Awakening. Now let's go ahead and move on to what I believe is the third Great Awakening, although scholars and theologians and pastors might disagree because they feel like that wasn't a third Great Awakening because it wasn't as powerful as the first or second, but it definitely was extremely powerful, not only from an American standpoint, but also from our brothers and sisters across the pond over in the Great Britain area, especially in Wales. And that is this period from around the early 1900s to 1910. And the first thing was these Pentecostal uh, revivals that started out in California specifically in San Francisco area, but then, of course, it grew past that in what they would call the Azusa Pacific revivals, and a whole Pentecostal movement uh, sprang forth from these revivals that were happening during that time. You know, a lot of uh, Pentecostal uh, denominations, such as uh, the Assemblies of God, Foursquare Gospel, uh, full Pentecostal, all they kind of sprang from this movement that happened in the early 1900s. And the biggest part of these movements, you know, if we kind of take the progression where, you know, the first one was the institution, break away from the institution to the individual. Second Great Awakening was not only an individual, but then go to the common man. I believe the third Great Awakening was this now the spirit is imparting on the individual because what happened during those revivals was this filling of the Holy Spirit. People were being healed. People were speaking in tongues. You had this amazing movement where the spirit was now being imparted on the individual believer, which is different than what was happening during the first or second great awakening. You know, what's, what's your understanding of this movement happening in the 1900s? Well, I think if we look at the effects of what happened with the Pentecostal movement and also the, uh, the Baptist movement was influenced, even though they don't believe in the uh, 
hold us of the spirit, I guess, in the way to say that. Is speaking a, in tongues or, or something like that. Yes. You know, and, there was definitely uh, revival happening in other yeah, denominations. And, yes, and they and it went worldwide. It was a deep-seated desire placed by the Holy Spirit to evangelize the whole world before the end comes. And looking at it from that aspect, there was a, a, an explosion across the world of evangelizing people for Christ in every country of, of the world. There are many denominations that believe, to, to include both Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal, that our greatest mission is to spread the word of God, spread the word of Christ to the whole world before tribulation happens. And before we go into this counterfeit totalitarian government worldwide. And so if that's going to happen worldwide, we need to evangelize as many people to the Christian faith as we can possibly do. The Great Harvest is called. And that arose out of this movement of the, the Great Awakening, the third, what you and I call the third Great Awakening of, the, of the America. It was powerful. It still is powerful. We see people going around the world. I, I know that uh, I, I mentioned Pastor Summerall. Uh, he's considered as one of the great missionaries, I guess what you call it. He brought food and the word more than anybody else did. He's considered one of the top evangelists. Would that be the right word? Uh, not necessarily as preaching, but as, as bringing the stories we could tell between you and I of what what God did with that ministry. is is. Uh, he was considered one of the top uh, evangelists of the 19th or the 20th century. That was just one example of people that had this burning desire to reach the needs of every person on the face of the earth. I believe that's what came out of that great awakening in the early 1900s. And, and Pastor Dave, which today. happens to be his grandson, tells a great story of uh, Dr. Summerall. You talk about this you know, missionary spirit that he had in him. Well, God in his prayers, he was praying one night and God told him that he was going to get a DC 10, you know, the big, the big planes, the military planes and deliver food to the remote, you know, areas of the world. Now, that may seem like not much of a story, except the fact of uh, civilians are not allowed to have a DC-10. It, it is a military plane. They do not uh, decommission those to civilians or any area. It has to have special approval. Well, Dr. Summerall was vehement that God told him he had to have that specific plane. He saw it in his vision. and. He went to his congregation and said, God has told me we need to buy this plane. Now, you got to understand how big this plane is. Um, people that aren't in the military don't understand how giant of a plane this is. It doesn't fit in normal uh, hangers, okay? It's pretty tall. You have to build a special hanger for it. And Pastor Dave, who, you know, relays this story, which is a, a, a great story, but he says it was kind of funny to him because, again, this they decided to build a hangar before they even had the DC-10 in the middle of, 
you know, South Bend, Indiana, in the cornfields, a gigantic hangar, and but they didn't have a plane to put this in. And of course, you know, people thought he was crazy, but he believed God told him that he had to have this plane and he was going to deliver uh, not only food, but then also uh, military or um, sorry, uh, medical supplies to remote areas of the world because it's the only plane that can really set down. It's a giant plane, but it can set down in grass fields. It's an amazing plane. Um, That's why the military uses it. Well, needless to say, he gets a call because he, you know, he puts it out and years go by, but he finally gets a call from, you know, an ex, you know, military guy, probably a higher up. I don't know what his rank was, but he says, you'll never believe it. He says, we got to, we got to decommission DC 10 here. And for whatever reason, they're saying that they'll allow a person to buy it. He said, but you got to buy it right now. Needless to say, they wrote the check and got it and moved it into this hangar. Now, what is amazing about this, not only of his faith, because obviously then he took that and countless thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, you know, throughout the world have benefited from that. But when the president of the United States flies in to South Bend, Indiana, where does he park his jet? Because it's the only hangar in South Bend, Indiana that can take as big of a plane as the Air Force One. It's that particular hangar. So can you believe that, you know, that's how God works in a vision. And I agree with you, Pastor Summerall comes from this movement that happened during the 1900s. He was mentored under these people that were a part of that. And he believed if God told him, no matter what you do it. And I believe that is what was the great spirit that was happening during these 1900s which was we had to internalize the spirit as an individual because what was happening 36 years from that period was this World War II period where the bloodiest, worst war to date, the whole world is this. And not only that, you had uh, Christians that were, you know, Christians and Jews heading off to concentration camps They had to rely on a spirit. It was no longer the church there because the church can't meet. They're in war. And so you have to rely on an individual spirit. And I believe that's what God was preparing the next generation for, was to have this spirit internalized so that they can get through this huge period, that uh, war period that we were going to go through. And then that transitions us into, you know, a little bit of the story of Dr. Summerall. But this is where my theory, if you can say that, with this understanding of 36 years, because I believe it's a system that God has put in place and it's a very logical system and we can follow it. But I see something happening in the next period after World War II, and that is when the next awakening, if you could call it a revival period, should have happened around the mid-80s. And what I really see is it happened probably 10 or 15 years prior to that. 
And what we had in the mid 80s was in essence a false revival or awakening. And that's partly because of this uh, church growth or, you know, movement where churches exploded, but not in the sense of uh, congregants, although there were that. But if you look at it from a whole standpoint, it wasn't that it was necessarily the church going up, but it was what they would call sheep stealing, which is these churches became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with programs. And then the smaller churches who had a, a more connection into their community and to the individual couldn't last anymore. And, you know, you saw in the 80s and then into the 90s and early 2000s, churches literally closing up all over the United States as people were then moved into these giant churches. So we're going back to the institutions, not to the individual. That's why I believe where we should have had this new revival, God in God's infinite wisdom actually shifted it a few years prior, a decade or more prior. And that's what I want to talk about here because you have a personal experience during that movement. And I truly, we've had the conversation on the phone. Your generation is the generation we need. And it's not, sorry, boomers, it's not your generation. It's the silent generation who God, because God shifted it up a few years. It's the silent generation that's going to help us, even though they're in their 80s. You know, some of them even approaching 90. But I still believe you as a generation, it's not time for you to move on yet. You have a responsibility, not only to the church, but to our country and to our world. because. I believe you're the last generation to really feel the spirit spirit and experience the spirit on a personal level that will help us propel through this period of the great reset or whatever we want to call it going forward. So can you talk a little bit about that period during the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s of this whole revival movement that was happening. Yeah, and remind me that I want to come back to what we're experiencing today with the churches. It was, a, you hit the nail on the head, it was a spiritual movement. And we talked about the charismatic movement. Now, the charismatic movement was emotional. It was mostly emotional. And, and so when we hear about the charismatic movement now, it kind of went away. The effects were still there. And as I had mentioned, um, your mom and I were involved in, uh, it was called Maranatha, and started in a person's home. A gentleman that had, um, he was a deserter. The an army never- A deserter or a spiritual army. No, an army deserter. Oh, a military, and okay. Military. And he was fine. Nobody bothered him. Nobody, and God got a hold of him. He convicted him to go and turn himself in and go before the judge and say, do what you need to do because I was wrong and I want to rectify it. Well, basically what happened is that the, uh, the judge 
exonerate him. So, you know, you, you've done enough. We're just going to not prosecute you at all because you were honest and, and you're talking about the spirit that has, has touched you. He told his friends or family. And, and so one of the people started having him come to the house. They talk and they pray and they pray in, in this weird stuff called tongues. And my wife and I, we were Methodists at the time, and we went to it. We ended up, I mean, it, it, it went from, when we went there, it was um, one big room, half full, and then it got full, and then it got overflowing. And I mean, it was just, the Holy Spirit was moving like crazy. And we would go home, and I'd pray in tongues, and your mom would, couldn't pray in tongues, but she could interpret it. And this is all new stuff to us. We have no clue what we were doing. So we did that. And then uh, you, you kind of fast forward to when I was in the military and I got stationed overseas. And we went to, um, first I was in Berlin and then behind the Iron Curtain. And then we went to Munich. And in Munich, we got involved in a non-denominational, international, charismatic movement. Now, the person that was in, that headed this, and this was in Munich, he was the director of Radio Free Europe that reached out behind the Iron Curtain, and he had a phone dedicated where the President of the United States could call him. That's where he was at, okay? Wow. Yeah. yeah, wow. And that's what we had. Going into a personal, we're, we're talking about how this affected Personally, how what I'm trying to tell you is what happened to us and our family. You don't mind me sharing, Sam. How it has stuck from this was in the this was in the early 70s, and that has sustained us clear through. Because as the audience, his mother died. She got her uh, master of theology before she died, which encouraged Sam to to go on and get his. And Sam's older brother died. Well. When we were in Munich, John, his older brother, uh, well, I, I, should I tell the whole story? Or just go over it, Sam. How do you want me to handle that? No, go ahead. Keep keep okay. telling the story. I'm not going to stop that. You're well. No, I, just, I don't want to bore the audience, but it, it's powerful. I mean, that's what the Lord did. No, no, uh, and I believe what you're going to bring up here the the point of what you're going through here, and I think the audience needs to hear is. This was a different time. The spirit was really, you know, prevalent. And not only did it affect us personally, but the spirit was around during this time and it affected lots of people. You know, this is one story out of thousands of stories that we could go through families and people could tell the same stories happening. I truly believe that this was, whether we call it a fourth great awakening or whatever, but this was definitely a period where the spirit was moving in our country. You know, this is just a personal story there. So yeah, keep keep going, you know, on your well, stories here. Okay, um, he ended up, he, what he ended up having was Rice syndrome. We went to three hospitals in one night. He just, one morning, couldn't get out of room hardly went into the bathroom, couldn't open the door. He was 14 years old at the time, very athletic, loved the Lord. I mean, 
And this is, I guess this is goes along with what we're talking about here. His room, there wasn't a spot on his room that did not have him writing Revelation down and, and taping them to the wall all the way around his whole room. I mean, he just, he just really loved the Lord and he couldn't wake up. And so we called the ambulance, they took him to the, to the base hospital. They couldn't deal with it. They sent him to Munich, or I mean to um, Augsburg. At Augsburg, they told us that he had Rice syndrome. And we said, what's that? <laughs> and it's basically what it is, is a, um, there's a valve. When it opens up, the ammonia level goes to your brain and kills you. I mean, that's bottom line. And so they had to drill into his, into his head to try to release some of the swelling. But on the way to the hospital, this is how the Holy Spirit moved that created in us a strength that we'll never get rid of. It will always be there. We will always know that the Lord will be able to come and take care of us. Because on the way to the hospital, all of a sudden, John popped up and screamed. And, then, and my wife was riding with him in the ambulance, fell down, and she turned and looked and Jesus was standing there. This is before we knew what was wrong with him at all. So then they got him back to the to the Munich hospital and um, that same night, Munich hospital was, was the uh, premier children's hospital in Europe. They came out and said, no, there, there's nothing we can do. This is, uh, we're just gonna have to turn the machine off because there was, there was no brainwave activity whatsoever. And I said, wait a minute. And I called Kevin, who was the director of Radio Free Europe at Disney. You've got to understand what time frame this was. This is when uh, we almost went to war in the, in the early 70s. Uh, we were already uh, in Vietnam and, and we about had nuclear war. I called him and I said, um, here's the situation. and. He said, don't do anything, let me pray. And he left his office, went out to the courtyard, and for about a half hour, and he was supposed to be never out of touch. He prayed, and he came back, and he said, George, I see John walking up a hill, and I see Jesus having his arm around him, walking up with him. And basically, it was turn the machine off. When we told them, then they told us, said, well, we're going to do a full autopsy because we don't know what's causing this Rice syndrome. I mean, it was only affected children and teenagers. My wife, knowing because she was went through nursing, she knew what a full autopsy was and she about went bananas. So we and a friend went and prayed in a bathroom and God spoke and God said, if I want to replace an arm, I'll replace an arm. If I want to replace a leg, I'll replace a leg. If I want to replace every organ in his body, I will do that. So we went out and my faith was a little weak. And I said, well, can you at least wait a half hour to see if he will wake up? <laughs> and of course he didn't. They turned the machine off and um, he died. Well, the rest of the story is that um, six months later, my wife, Sam's mother, she went in and she had a mold on her back. She didn't tell anybody. The, the military allowed me to be transferred to Fort Benning or Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana. 
even though it had gone past three days. At that time, the military policy was you have three days to decide whether or not you want to stay in the Army after you lose a child or a spouse. So we got to, to there, and she went into the military base, and um, they said, yeah, you have cancer, and sent her home. And our church, which was Pastor Bibbert, who was, as I mentioned before, he and his wife prayed. Orchid was his wife's name. She gave his, us the um, name of an oncologist. They did the biopsy. They would not let her leave. That was on a Friday. She was already at a level three. Four is terminal. They wanted to operate on Tuesday. Over the weekend, I prayed, and, and um, that was right at the weekend of Three Mile Island. If you remember Three Mile Island, uh, we came very close to a monster nuclear disaster. And the Lord had me pray the whole weekend on uh, Three Mile Island. And during that time frame, I got a, 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 a vision or whatever of a big blob about this big. Didn't know what it was. Well, Tuesday, when they operated on, on her, they took that much out of her back and, and took it from, from her rear. But she had a scar the rest of her life on her back about this big. And it never once bothered me. And that was only from, from the Holy Spirit because something like that causes divorces. I mean, it's, that stuff is <laughs> not good especially after losing a, a son. And so then we met with the oncologist. The oncologist said, if you don't do anything, you have six months to live. If you take this new drug, Infofurin, that was back then, that was, they're, they're doing it now, but this was in its infancy. It may help you, it may not, whatever, but that's your best chance. And so we went home, we prayed about it, and the Lord said, no, do not take it. And so we went back to him and we said, hey, <laughs> the Lord said for her not to take it. And we both agree. And he said, you realize what you're doing? And I said, yeah, we're taking her life in our hands. But God told us not to do it. He started crying. I, I still remember this. He was a Jewish oncologist. And he said his son had got something into his eye and they wanted to operate. And something told him not to do it and he didn't and and it worked what medications they used worked for him but he understood and then as carol and i came out and we prayed god spoke and god said to me it will be 10 years and it will not matter now fast forward 10 years she got sick again and went into the hospital and Basically, they came out halfway through and said that uh, there's no chance we'll be picking tumors out of her stomach. And so they just had to sew her back up. So they, they did, they, they sewed her back up. What happened is that she had melanoma and the melanoma, when she had changed of life, went to the stomach and internal. They wanted to do this new drug called Infoferum. Remember, we had that 10 years before. And she said, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and just try it for because my family, because they gave her, I mean, it was terminal. Her temperature, when the first injection, it went to 105. We stopped it. Three months later, the Lord took her home. But obviously, we but I, well, yeah, that's what you're yeah. going to bring up. Had she taken that yeah. 10 years prior, you know, when, you, when God told you, 
do not have her take that, she could have yep. died there. And instead, she had 10 more years. The, the thing is, God's prophecy was right. It was 10 years, and it did not matter what they did. The Lord was taking her home. 10 years before, I said, oh, good. 10 years from now, they'll have something that'll cure it. Right. Don't always, we hear the words, we don't exactly. always interpret them the right way. Yeah, yeah. God's, God's words are true. Sometimes we interpret them different than how God intends it. That's what we're, I guess that's what you and I are trying to say, is that that generation, our generation, our people that are 80s, 90s, some 70s, what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. And we, you can't change us because it has been deep in us. The spiritual awakening in our lives is unchangeable. It can't because it's so locked in. And that brings me to where I wanted to go with this once we talked about our generation. Yeah. Because we have seen, you and I, because we're in business, we saw the savings and loans being closed up. I did. That was a little early for you. But they, they closed, the savings and loans were directly to the people, one-on-one. You're the, you're, you're the manager, I'm the, and we talk. And you know that I've had a good record. Yeah, I had some bad harvest, but okay, I've always paid my debts and I'm okay. And you'd loan me money even though it wasn't really the, the, the best thing to do. Well, it's, it's a wonderful life. It's, that, it's a wonderful life. That's right. a perfect he, example. You know, it, <laughs> it, it was and, personal. And, it was a community and, bank. And the banks swallowed them up, made them close. Uh, we could go into all the evil things that were done, but, but basically they made them close. Then they began to do others. And in, in our industry, in uh, what, 2008, 9, 10, they started shutting down all the independent mortgage companies. Now, Sam and I audited mortgage companies for years. They shut it down so that the banks went from being able to have 10% of the deposits, but through the uh, Frank Dodd bill by, by the 2010, 2011, somewhere, they had 80% of all the deposits in this country. It was a consolidating is what I'm trying to say. So we saw a consolidation of the mortgage industry. We've seen personally a consolidation of the CPA firms. It's the small CPA firms are being wiped out. Fast forward to now and think about what's happening now. They are purposely agenda-driven, shutting down all the small businesses in this country. And there will only be the big ones Institutions. Uh, about, large that's right. You, you can go to Walmart and buy a, say, a dress. But the dress shop down the street, the local dress shop, can't have anybody in there. This is purposely to wipe out, say, 95% of all small businesses. What happens then? Well, you have a choice. You can work for a big company or you can starve. If you work for a big company, you're going to play by their rules. And their rules are in concert with the people in control, totalitarian government that's coming in this country. Because we see it in other countries, it's the same thing. It's the China model is what's happening. It's the China model. Yeah. The, the, the social, social media where they're shutting down. If you have a opinion, 
that is different than what the state prescribed opinion is at that time, because again, they can change it, then you will be shut down in social media. You will not have a platform to speak your freedom of speech, which is a bedrock of our country. Correct. We have to remember that this is a hundred year walk. This has not come about just in the last two years. This has been going on as a takeover of this country for the last hundred years. This is just the culmination and the apathy of this, of the people in this country is appalling, which brings us back to the church. Yeah, because we had that growth of mega churches, bigger churches. And what happened is that the pastor as a shepherd goes away. It's the pastor, pastor as a CEO. Yep, as an executive or as staff right. members. And so what they did with the big churches, as, as you mentioned, shut out the majority of the small churches. And now they have the bigger churches. Well, now what's happened with COVID? What are they doing? They're shutting down the churches. And the, and the churches have gone without a whimper. They're just giving in. The churches went out, these mega churches and smaller churches, and borrowed big time. And yeah, they, we saw that started, in the mortgage. Huge mortgages on these buildings because they had to get bigger and bigger. And now they don't have the people because people aren't coming. They're not conjugating. They're, they're going online. Well, guess what? You go online, that's controlled. We're going to have the same thing we had in Nazi Germany where the church simply did what they were told, uh, and you had a few underground churches. And I have been talking, as you know, Sam, for many, many years, that we would at some point have the above ground and the underground churches. And we would have, going back to the first century, where we didn't have churches, we had uh, gatherings in the home. And, yeah, and maybe you know, they're gonna food. be taking away that now too. Because in fact, even in uh, Pennsylvania, I just saw there with the COVID-19, the governor has said that they are outlawing anybody in your house that's not a part of your family. So what does that do to churches that want to do Bible studies at houses? It will be illegal if this goes across the country. It will be illegal for churches or Christians to meet in their homes with other families, to do Bible studies or groups or gatherings or anything, you know, what a normal church does and supposed to do as a community. And they want, because again, what are they pushing? They're pushing, oh, go to Zoom meeting. Oh, you can go online. Why do they want to do that? Well, because everything that's online is digitized and then it's stored somewhere. And so they can always have access to what you're saying, how you're saying it and going for, you know, if you're meeting in their home, in your home, although nowadays when we have iPhones and computers and TVs, they can listen to us, Alexa. I mean, Alexa's listening all the time if you have that in your home, but they want to take it even a step further and you can only meet online so that they can monitor you to make sure you're not saying something that they disagree with. And that's where we're moving into this era of technological dominance. I mean, Hitler, he would be drooling over the power that we would have right now if he had that. 
you know, they used to have the brown shirts that would, you know, go into the homes to search it and stuff. Now they just go up on a computer. They can search it and they can find out what you're saying through your social media, what you're saying even in your home or what you're saying online. If you're doing meetings with people or if you're holding church online, they can see all of that. They can monitor you 24 seven, 365 days a year. There is, you are under constant surveillance. And that's what they want. We are moving to a totalitarian uh, society. And what I want to do, I want to circle back just a tad here because I want to bring the church into this because you hit my hot button, but I want to bring it up so that we kind of, you know, finish out this and then bring it to our last, you know, time period, which is the now time period during this revival period of the seventies, the the two main things that really pop during that time, and you can go online, you can even pull down, uh, they still have videos of revivals during that time. Uh, so you can really see that. But one of the two areas that really stood out other than the charismatic movement, we've already talked about that, was prayer and visions and healing. Actually, there's three things if you really want, because there was a huge amount of healing happening during that time. Uh, but Prayer was a big, big thing happening during these revivals. In fact, I don't know if you remember, you know, was it Asbury, Asbury College and Seminary during 1970? Do you remember that at all? Yes. Where the students, and and again, it hit the students. Well, the students are now the people that are your age or around your age that have the, you know, the experience that hit their foundation, but the students literally just started praying and never stopped. And they had huge revival that then kicked off, you know, going out to all states and and countries. But that was a big part of their revival was this prayer. And then they had visions. Well, that that reminds me, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Okay, when I was in, when we, you were there too, uh, very young, but you were there, in South Korea, Mm. I can't remember the pastor's name, he started out, what they did is they set up a 24-hour prayer chain in the mountain, I, I remember that part, and that grew, and that grew, and that grew, and at the time, because I was in I think I was in Berlin at that time. He came and he spoke. At that time, they had 250,000 members of his church, all from praying 24 hours a day. And later on, it was over a million. Uh, And and you mentioned, too, that at that time, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, different church groups had, and I'm trying to remember, I think his name was... Brother Andrews, I think that's what he was, but he would go behind the Iron Curtain with Bibles. And of course, at that time, you get caught with Bibles. No, you're dead. Caught, you're dead. And he would, they would pray as to which house to go to, and the Lord would tell them which house to go to. Well, he told them a story one time of people having a Bible study in their home, and there was a knock on the door, several of these law enforcement, would that be the right word? <laughs> with some machine guns, 
Gestapo. I know it wasn't Gestapo because that was Russia. Or yeah, yeah that would have been Russia and the yeah. No, but, but, uh, Germans. but knock on the door, they came in, they said, if you're not a Christian, you can leave. If you're a Christian, we're going to shoot you dead right now. And about half the congregation or people gathering left. Soon as they left, these guys turned around, shut the door, and said, Where were we in this prayer meeting? They yeah, were Christian. Start the prayer meeting. They wanted to know who was yeah. safe and who wasn't. That's how powerful the Holy Spirit will be when we begin to go to the totalitarian world government, because we're going to have to be. If we're not, we won't survive. Yeah, and you have to have this connection with the Holy Spirit. You brought that yeah. up which is the Holy Spirit were, was guiding them specifically. And I believe that's why we had this revival that God brought during that time period. Because again, we had prayer, we had visions, we had healing. Those are outpours of the Holy Spirit. You internalized the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know what to do is we have to go in prayer. We have to internalize to the spirit and allow the spirit to talk to us. And then if the spirit tells us to do one thing, even though it may seem, I mean, you've already had a couple stories, like oh, yeah. it goes against what we should be doing. There's a reason you need to okay. trust that. And that's why I fully believe it's your generation because yes, I can believe it. My generation, Generation X, I believe that you experienced that firsthand. And, you know, you experienced healing. You experienced the outgrowth of the Holy Spirit. And you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that no matter what is thrown at us, that yeah. we can get through this, but it's, it's going to be choppy waters. And, yeah. and we have to internalize. Don't, don't listen to necessarily our state people or even the church leaders. If the Holy Spirit tells you to do something different than what they are, go with the Holy Spirit because there's a reason. And you internalize that as a young man. And now here you are in your later years. I won't use the word old man pops, <laughs> but you're in your, yeah, you're in your years. <laughs> And now you can impart that to the younger generation um, because you experienced that, even though, you know, I may never experience that. I can trust you knowing that you experienced that. And just maybe, just maybe I can get through this by doing what your generation did. And that leads me on to, and this is my theory. Now my egghead nerd theory on my systematic system here is I believe when we were supposed to have another awakening, whether it be a fourth awakening or another revival of, of some sort, should have happened in the early 80s, mid 80s through to the 80s based on the system. And it's not that the system is wrong. It's just I believe that almost like a revelation church here that we are to the end of the cycle and the spirit has been taken away as we go through closer to where we are now. And it's during this period that we had a false awakening 
we thought that this was the real awakening because what was happening? We saw these huge churches in the mid eighties, just popping up all over the places. You know, it looked like it appeared like, oh my goodness, Christianity spreading like crazy, but it really wasn't. I mean, if you go back and look at the statistical numbers, like I said, I'm a, I'm a nerd, you know that I'm a statistics nerd. You go back and look at the numbers. Christianity in America didn't rise during that time period. You, You know, if you looked at your eyes, it must be, it actually declined in a lot of cases or leveled. It didn't go because what was happening was sheep stealing back and forth to churches. And I believe that ties into what you were talking about here, which is this rise of the institution or the totalitarian type system. And that's why I believe that was a false awakening because what it did was it turned a church to rely on the institution. And you brought it up earlier where pastors were no longer uh, shepherds of a church. They were executives or staff members of a church. That's a different model. And what that does is it puts the focus onto the institution instead of the actual church, which is God's ordained system for the church, where the pastor is the shepherd of the congregation. And there's a specific reason why God uses shepherd as opposed to executive, um, because he has or she has a connection, an emotional connection with the people. And what we have, and it happened, started happening in the 80s, into the 90s and early 2000s, is this shift into these mega churches, these huge churches. So now that leads us into where we are now. The time the church needs to rise up and say enough's enough. This is our right of worship. You cannot take that away from us. What do you have? You have pastors going, whoa, well, you know, I want our congregation to be safe because why? They're not trusting in God, trusting in man. And not to say that we need to take precautions. Of course, we need to take precautions. We have to continue to worship as a community. And they're taking that right away from us. And these mega churches are at the forefront of doing that to the Christian community. These pastors are the leaders of the community and they're saying, hey, I'm listening to the governor. I'm listening to this person. I'm listening to everybody but God or the spirit, partly because they got board members that are probably attorneys or, you know, leaders in the community or what have you, doctors, whatever. Hey, you got to do this. You know, we can't, you know, we have one person, they could sue us. And that's what they're listening to. That leads us to where we are now. Sheep among wolves. 